0: Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here with a special episode of Sly Flourish's Lazy D&D Talk Show. Tonight, we are going to go, we're just focusing exclusively on the January Patreon Q&A. So this show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can help me out by joining the Sly Flourish Patreon. And one of the benefits of being a patron of Sly Flourish is we have a monthly Q&A thread. Uh, Every month I put up a thread, I'm going to put up the February one, probably tomorrow, and we will Uh, anybody can put a question on there any of the patrons can put a question on there I will either I will certainly answer it directly I do that anyway Uh, I might do a short video on it or I might talk about it in a show like this so at the end of the month we have leftover questions that we haven't gotten to and I'm going to do a show like this which I am doing right now to go through all of those questions so this is going to be a relatively long show in which we uh, will go as long as we need to answer all the questions maybe it's pretty quick and maybe it's going to take some time we'll find out so let's jump right into the questions. Cormac F says, Villains and ex- plot exposition. Any tips on making this seem more natural in the three rounds of combat that they are likely to last? I have my list of secrets and clues, but sometimes it feels a little awkward or forced to have them be revealed in the BBEG's last breath. Sure. Uh, I, I don't worry about that. I think it's perfectly fine to have villains spout exposition about their secret dastardly plans. I think there's other ways to do it, too. You could have the plans that are written up in uh, notes and in journals and in other artifacts that the characters could find in the chamber. Maybe parts of the plot become revealed by other things. Maybe they overhear conversations. Maybe they turn one of the villains, uh, one of the villains agents and are able to draw information from them. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of reveal those. But I don't, don't worry about the being too cliche. Sometimes the cliches can just work and they're funny and we're all just playing a game. We don't, this isn't, you know, this isn't like, we're not, we're not going to be winning a Pulitzer prize for our work here, right? We're just you know, or or we're just doing a D&D game. So so don't, I, I tend not to worry about it too much, right? The lazy, I'm lazy, right? I'm a lazy DM, and that's what I promote. And when I, if it makes sense for a villain to spill their dastardly plot, that's a good way to do it. Another way is to to have the characters, you could do it through insight roles. They start to figure it out while they're there. They see things and they observe things. And now that they're actually there pulling in all this information, they can, uh, uh, they, they might learn it themselves. So that's kind of a way of taking the villain's exposition and putting it into the players now the players are exposing it to everyone. i think i think i know what's going on here right and they're putting the dots together so that's another way to do it but generally don't worry about it too much relax right just relax and cliches are perfectly fine uh dr nick says do you have any solutions for players that race for treasure as a player i've been a long-term game where a player is very grabby five levels and months into the game and everyone was still being nice but the problem player had two magic weapons only one of which he could use, and the rest of the party had less money and no magic items. As the DM, I had tables of the players, mostly younger players, would grab everything for the character. I and the other DMs resorted to assigning items, mandating even splits of coinage, and ignoring in-game positioning for players hoping to grab up the salute." Yeah, I think you're doing exactly right, and a, I think it's you know I I hate to constantly bang on the um, uh, the the session zero drum, right? But I you know, and I know it's not a cure-all for all problems. I get it, right? But it's not a. It's a good one to bring up when you're when you're gonna put a system in place, like how we're gonna distribute and handle loot. Particularly if you know that some of your players there uh, have are are grabby, right? It's not bad to say. By the way, this is how we're going to handle loot. All money is distributed evenly among party members, and no, Mister Rogue, you can't steal extra. You can steal, but anything you steal goes back to the party. The group is here, and two, uh, loot is. Your loot will be permanent. Magic items will be distributed based on how many you have, and and then if there's a generally even amount, or if the person who doesn't have that many, the the person with the fewest items gets to choose the item. But if they don't want it, people can roll off for it, right? And we roll randomly, and that's how it's distributed. So. You can come up with a loot system, and that, that's one that I like. And even among my adult friends where they're not particularly grabby, we, we, that's a good style of doing it because there's still like, oh, I kind of like that item, but I don't want to say anything because they might like it. So it's easier to say, like, whoever's got the fewest magic items gets to choose what they do. They, I don't think I would let them choose who gets it, right, because they might favor somebody else, right? And instead, they can, they can throw it back into the pot, in which case it goes to the next person who's got the fewest, or you could just say, okay, how about we roll off on this, right? And generally that works because there's two sides to this. And one side is you have the greedy people who grab it. And the other side is you have people that are really going out of their way not to be greedy, which means they end up not taking anything, right? Because they don't want to take it from the rest of the group. And you're like, no, they should get it too. So having an even system for how, how you're distributing loot, I think is a good thing. In fact, it's probably, this is probably worthy and ar- worth an article on like what's a good loot distribution system that that works well. So I might, I'm, I'm going to not check that one off because I think that might turn into a good system. Victor G says, Using your three of five keys design, I've set up five conditions slash MacGuffins for a slot apotheosis, but I'm struggling with how to present the quest in a fantastic manner. E- E.g., you see before you the legend of Havoc the Slod and the three of five things he needs to become a god. I think that sounds weird. Does that sound weird? That sounds weird, yes. But there's other ways to do it, right? And there is that idea of, like, in, in the world describing how that works. And players recognize quest models right when they and they're comforting right players are comfortable when they say ah i get it right i understand what we need to do we need to collect these three things and we only and there are are a total of five out there but we only need three so you you know the way you describe it is a little you know that's a little mechanic-y right but i bet you you could split that into two or three sentences that sounds more in world and in story that still gets the same point across so I, I think you can describe it in different ways. And, and some players will go, huh, that's interesting. Or they, if they know it, they'll go, oh, look, the three of five quests, right? The three of five key quest. So for people who don't understand the three of five keys, the idea here is that instead of having an all or nothing quest, where like I must have the five keys to open the big door, and then, oh, crap, one of the guys ra- grabbed a key and ran off with it. Well, now I can't get in the door. Instead, you can have the majority of keys required instead of five. Like, it takes three keys to open this huge door. There are five such keys. Any of the three of the five keys can open the door. And they're scattered all out. And one maybe there were six keys. One was already lost many centuries ago. So there's only five left, Right. And then it's like, okay, they can pick which one they want to go to. It gives them agency. It gives you an opportunity for bad guys to be working against the good guys and not have it where if one group gets one key, it completely hoses up things. It's a much more robust quest model when you use the three or five keys quest. And I have videos and articles that talk about the three or five key design if you want to see it. Uh, so how do you describe it? I think, you know, again, don't worry too much about it, right? And players like to know that, what the model is, even out of world. So if, if you describe it with your in-world flowery terms and then say, by the way, what this means is it takes three such keys to open the door of five or three, whatever this is, the three of the five things you need to be, you know, he needs to become a god. He only needs three and there are five such things and he's sent minions out there to go find them. So you got to go find them too. And you want to grab up three before they do because otherwise, you know, they'll they'll succeed. Hope that helps, Victor. Uh, Arjun N says I'm all for reskinning monsters rather than making new ones from scratch. Good deal. very powerful lazy DM tool. However, I feel like I spend a lot of time combing through the monster manual to find the right monster to reskin, okay? I know that you have some go-to monsters you like to reskin, but I wonder if there's more uh, there is a more robust, generalized way of using the custom monster table from the DMG to generate stats on the fly for monsters. Any thoughts on this? So I do think that reskinning is probably the best, Fastest approach because you're taking something that a professional designer has made and that has been through playtesting and You don't have to worry about getting the mechanics, right? Generally speaking, right? so uh So definitely reskinning works. Well, Uh The stat the, the page on DMG page seven one two seventy four I think can work fine It's a little tricky too because like it doesn't tell you how much damage per attack or anything like that So I'm gonna do a little in a little advertisement here in the middle of my video uh, in Patrons of Sly Flourish have access to a document called Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. This is all of the material that is not, that all the guidelines and inspiration and generators that are not inside the Lazy DM's Companion, my new book, which just went for general sale today, by the way. And that, one of the things I just put in this book this month, that happened this February, is a monster builder, two-page monster builder, right, a, a, a one-sheet front and back monster builder page that expands upon and simplifies the dmg page 274 rules the idea there is you can pick you can pick a challenge rating you can see all the stats of the monster that you need for that challenge rating and then you can add and you can modify it however you think fits the story and then you can add different traits to that monster to make it kind of unique. It's a quick way to do it. I still think reskinning is better. <laughs> Even if, I think reskinning is better than the thing that I made. But I think that the thing I made can work really well. I've used it and it and it and it works pretty well. So I would I would take a look at that and that's definitely a way to do it. If you're happy using the stats on page DMG page two seventy four, go with the gods. Right. That should that should work too. The the, the stats are pretty close. I think mine are a little harder. I, I I jacked my damage up on mine because I thought they needed to be more dangerous. Thank you, Arjun. Chris T says, I'm about to start my second campaign with a group and I, that I've DM'd for for over three years. During the last campaign, Tomb of Annihilation, I worked to incorporate aspects of the character backstories into the adventure, especially a very small one of three sessions. I noticed that while all my players enjoyed having their character sp- story spotlighted, some were more hesitant to be thrust forward as their main, drive of the party, main driver of the party story. In preparing for my next campaign, should I ask all my players individually how much they want their individual backstories to drive or play into the larger campaign? How do I make sure players don't feel left out uh, if their characters' backstories aren't as tightly integrated in the cam- in the larger campaign, but I think I think what you're describing is a good way to do it. Different players want different things, right? And I'll 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 get I'll make a hot take. You ready for a Sly Flourish hot take? So there's been a fair bit of energy from very very smart people, people that I highly respect, which usually means like, huh? If all of these really smart people that I highly respect are saying this thing is good, and I don't think it's good, it's probably good, and I'm probably wrong. But I'm going to bring up my point anyway. Uh, a lot of people talk about the DMG, the, the, the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide, and also uh, Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, right? Both of them have this idea of being able to uh, consider the archetypes. I think even the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide has a little of this too, that there are different players fall into different archetypes, like your power gamer or your slayer or your, you know, the, the relaxed person that I don't remember what they all are, but they generally say like, oh yeah, you have your power gamer type and you have your slayer type and you have your story focused person and you have your sort of relaxed person. And there's like seven or 12 of these different archetypes. And I've always thought like, that's not a useful model. And the reason it's not useful is like, it's a really interesting model. And you could do like a great big analysis of all the players of D&D and they probably fall into these groups but you've got six of your friends at your table. They are unique and they don't typically want one thing. They're typically not just the story player and the slayer and the power gamer. They all have different aspects of this. And so I've had friends that are like, yeah, and that's why it doesn't fit one model. And you can figure out like they're 70% slayer and 30% power gamer. And I'm like, what's the point in that, right? Like now I'm doing a bunch of crazy math. How about I just worry about what my what my friend Bill likes, right? Why don't I worry about what Bill wants, right? And think about what, and then get rid of the archetype ideas because like, it's it's sort of like the stereotyping, right? And it's like, how about I worry about Bill and not worry about Power Gamer or, or whatever? And again, I, I, very smart people I've talked to who are like, yeah, it, y- it is useful. And it may not be useful to you, but it is useful for a lot of people. I'm like, okay, but it doesn't feel useful to me. So my main point with this, in relation to this question, is that all players want different things, and it's helpful to us to talk to them absolutely and kind of figure out the kind of things that they like. And I, th- I think your your approach is good. That's saying like, hey, how much you know? I, you know, how how much did you enjoy it when I brought your character's story in the previous session? Did you like it a lot, or are you be really like, uh, you're just more for the main story? And you're kind of using that information because it also could turn out that the person who might've felt uncomfortable really liked it anyway and just didn't tell you, right? They might've been shy about it when it was going on, but then afterwards said, man, that was so cool. And they might not have told you that. So it's worth, it's always worth communicating. It's always worth having a conversation and, and trying to find out the kinds of things. And, and they might tell you, yeah, I don't really care, right? I'm really here because I like hanging out with my friends and rolling dice and punching monsters in the face. And you're like, okay, cool, right? And then other players are like, no, I really like the in-depth story. But even then, I've seen it where players are like, I just want to punch monsters in the face. And then the DM then says, okay, well, I'm going to have this great big intricate storyline with this other player. And they're like, why are we doing everything about them, right? So it's tricky, right? People are complicated. People are complicated. People are hard. And we say things, and then it turns out we don't want what we said. And we say we don't want things in terms that we do. So, you know, you gotta be flexible with it. And I would say like, I probably wouldn't put too much emphasis on any one character, nor would I pull away too much emphasis away from any one character. I'd keep a balance on that. So I hope that's useful. That was a fun rant. Glad I got to have a rant. Lawrence H says, uh, what can you suggest for a lazy whole party retreat mechanic? Uh, uh, ready for another, uh, I guess we're gonna have another hot take within two things. I don't need extra mechanics for stuff like this. A lot of people like to build mechanics all over the place. I was just talking to Blades in the Dark, right? Blades in the Dark feels like it's got mechanics around all sorts of stuff. I think you can just do it. Right. Maybe you roll a skill check if you want to, but maybe if it's clearly if it's like clearly the best thing to happen in the story, you just switch to narrate it. And you say, maybe if you want, you could say like, you were all able to escape, but you suffer a level of exhaustion from the process, right? Like if they went into a situation that they should have known better to get into, and then went, I think we're hosed, you can say, Do you guys want to retreat from this situation? Right. And you can break out of initiative, break out of opportunity attacks, break out of all that stuff, get out of the tactical part of the combat and just say, You're able to, you know, after after some some careful strategizing and some some strategic retreating. You were able to break away from your battle against the adult blue dragon, right? However, doing so is not without a cost. You all suffer one level of exhaustion or two levels of exhaustion, right? I think that that is a way to go. So exhaustion is a good way to, to have somebody that runs. Or if it wasn't for their own fault, right? If it was just bad circumstances, maybe they're able to run away without suffering any penalty. Maybe they just do it. But I would think about it in the story, right? All of the mechanics serve the story. And you you can change you can change the story to fit it, right? You can you can look at it and say, I think there's a way. But boy, yeah, I've I've talked to many of my friends who have uh, are both designers of 5 designers of DD and D stuff and players and DMs, right? And all of us say, like, the Uni5e does not have good mechanics for escaping. It doesn't. Once you get kind of because of like opportunity attacks and all and the positioning and stuff like that, it is really hard to retreat. And players hate retreating. There's like a few things players just hate, right? Are you ready? Write these down. One, they hate having their stuff taken away. They really hate it. Really consider whether or not they should have their stuff taken away. It's a bad, it's a DMs all over the place. Love doing it. Don't do it. They want their stuff. Let them keep their stuff. They hate running away from stuff. When they, especially when they get involved, it's one thing for them to see something and go, "Yeah, that's Orcus over there, and we're level six. I think we should go." Right. So, you know, so that that's one circumstance. But another one is like when they go running in. If they get into a battle, you know, it's just it's once they're in combat, they hate leaving it. Right. They hate they hate leaving combat. They also hate it when monsters run away from them. Right. If your expectation is, oh, the monster will run away, oh, that drives and especially if it's like a named monster or a villain, they hate it. Even if it's legitimate, they hate it. Right. So don't plan on a monster getting away. If this circumstance arrives and the monster tries to get away, first of all, expect that it's still going to take a long time. It's you're not out of the woods yet when it comes to timing, right? Like it, the battle still might go on because they might pull some stuff. Uh, and an easy one is to look at the final episode of critical role season one right which is a tremendous episode of D. if you want to watch you know a level 20 D game watch the final episode of critical role season one and watch all the stuff that goes on there Incredible eight players or nine players level 20 holy cow right and the main villain tries to escape and somebody else uses a Uh, like a ninth level counter spell to stop them from escaping, right? And it changes the whole course of their whole story because of that. Amazing. So players hate to watch monsters run away. They also hate running away themselves and they hate having their stuff taken away. James W, you are slowly creating, slowly. Thanks, James. You are slowly creating resources for DMs to have at their table during prep and during play. I feel like a natural progression uh, for you would be to create a DM screen. Have you thought about this before? And what do you think you'd put on it? I already have put out a DM screen. That DM screen is the lazy DMs workbook. So I don't I actually don't use DM screens myself. Uh, I, I like to be at the same table that the players are at. And I don't like to be separated by them with a big wall, right? I don't like having that wall in place. Uh, also, it just physically gets in the way when I'm when I'm running my games, lots of DMs do. I fig- I did a poll on this, right? And lots of I don't remember what it is, but lots of DMs use DM screens. That's cool. And one of the reasons we use DM screens is there's lots of resources in it that help us run our games. Great stuff. When I wrote, uh, when I put together the Lazy DMs Workbook, the Lazy DMs Workbook was my 30-page. DM screen that you could sit there at your table and has all of the resources that you would normally want on a DM screen. So if you want to see the stuff that I think should be on a DM screen, poke through the Lazy DMs workbook, particularly the first few pages. And you have things like a bunch of random names, all the different skills and the associated attributes, uh, quick generators for all kinds of things, both like you know hazards and improvised damage. And traps and all sorts of stuff so things to help the stuff that you want to have on your dm screen or whatever it is whether it's a actual physical screen or just pieces of paper that you keep in front of you I also have a thing called the, the 5e cheat sheet let's take a look at this right I have a dD cheat sheet which is a PDF you can print this out right uh, you can print this single page PDF out and what I like to do is I print it out on resume paper really nice copper cool looking parchment resume paper and then I laminate it and on one side, I've got a laminated sheet that has all of this, all of this stuff in it. Let's, let's zoom in on some of it, right? Improvised statistics for objects, traps, and hazards, all kinds of stuff here. What skills are associated with abilities? Because I forget about that all the time. Quick encounter building. I actually have a much faster way to do this. I should probably update this. Uh, minimum targets for area of effect. Uh, the difficulty class range. Monster group attacks and saves. This is for hordes, right? I, I'm going to update this. All right, it's time to update this. Uh, I have the conditions because everybody could use a list of the conditions. I think that's every DM screen I think has had it and I think it's very valuable. And then I like to have piles of random names, right? This is what I found to be most useful in a single sheet. And when you have a laminated sheet on both sides, one side is a whiteboard. You can draw anything you want on the other page. And then one side is your cheat sheet. So I find this and I have the, the picture that you see here is actually the one I have in my, uh, uh, in my DM kit and I, I adore it, I love it. So I'm gonna update this, thank you for reminding me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep your thing unchecked, but I don't use a DM screen itself. I probably am not going to manufacture a DM screen. I think the workbook covers it, uh, because the, yeah to me the workbook is what I think, I, I think the most valuable thing you can have. And then this little one pager, which you can get right on the Life website, and it's linked in the show notes below. Thank you James, I'm gonna keep yours unchecked because I have to, you gave me work, because I'm so busy slowly creating resources. I haven't answer answered your question. I'm so mad about this, slowly. Uh, Broggle, I'm DMing for a group of five players and recently got the feedback from them that they feel like our combat encounters could be more interesting. This is, this is, your, your question is interesting. And I agree with them. I try to use some tactics and think about what the monsters would do in certain situations. Uh, but a lot of times the bad guys just end up attacking once or maybe twice and then getting killed. With tougher enemies uh, that do not die that quickly, I also have the struggle to keep things interesting because they end up being big bags of hit points. Yep attacking multiple times but being too stationary do you have any thoughts on how to make interesting encounters so that they don't feel all the same and keep players engaged in combat what's really interesting about this question is that there's there's different groups have different problems right and some the monsters are too basic and boring and the combat is too boring and then the other side is like it's too complicated and takes too long right and it's it's really hard to find the balance between it and i think that this is a um you know that this this swings back both ways. Sometimes it's good to have really intricate, complicated battles with lots of things going on, and then it's easier to have two ogres in a room holding a cake, right? So I think you can you can you can oscillate between just like we oscillate beats, like upper beats and downward beats. You can oscillate between like simple battles and complex battles, right? Uh, so ways to make things more interesting. Obviously, there's a, there's a bunch of different ones. One terrain. Right, make make the terrain interesting. Pits of lava, high ground, uh, high ground areas, weird magical monuments that are radiating power. All kinds of stuff you can do with terrain. And, uh, you can, you know, there's, if you go search on Sly Flourish, there's a bunch of articles where I talk about like how to make terrain kind of interesting. Terrain is one mixing the types of bad guys up. And this is where people get into combat roles for bad guys, like pe- combat roles for monsters. W- who are your ranged attack monsters versus your brutes? And are they set up in a way that makes it tactically interesting for you to have to go, Like I got to get these three trolls so I can get back to that shaman back there. Cause the shaman is nailing us with call lightning, right? So stuff like that. Uh, You can take some approaches from the Matt Colville-style action-oriented monsters, right, in which uh, you can give either a boss monster or a particularly big monster things that they do each round. Like round one, they do this. Round two, they do this. And round three, they do this. The model, the general model, a loose model for the the Colville-style action-oriented models is maneuver, let it get into a position where it's particularly effective, escape, uh, let it uh, escape from a situation where the characters are all pinned it down, and then explode. Do something really big and monumental, right? So yeah, so those are, those are some, But and you can, you know, if you look like, uh, uh, if you see some of the example action-oriented monsters, you'll see other things that you can do. But basically the idea that each round, the whole battle is changing because this creature is doing something. Phased battles are another one, like having more monsters show up in the middle is a good, a good interesting thing to have happen. So that's, that's just a few ideas, right? A few, a few different ways, but there's, there's lots of things to do. The hard part is all of that thing makes battles harder to run and take longer, right? So you, you have to balance that out. And I think there are times, uh, there are times where uh, you, you wanna have simpler battles. The other thing I'll throw in is just double down on your descriptions and double down on the fiction, right? It's not just an ogre hits you with a club, right? The ogre has you know, a club with like bits of hair on the spikes, big rusty nails on it, and he roars out as he slams it. Go, go big, go big in your descriptions, right? Change things, have him smash walls and rocks fall down and it grants disadvantage to him on his next attack or grants advantage in the next attack on him. You know, do interesting things that are in the story, really dive into what it looks like. And if you're, it depends, like if you're doing gridded combat, gridded combat, if you've got maps and minis and is simple, I think are worse than if you're doing a theater of the mind battle. That's simple because in the theater of the mind, everybody has to kind of imagine what's happening. There's courses, all kinds of things, affectasia where you can't really see what people are describing as a problem, but you can still do looser stuff. So I think sometimes the problem you're describing takes place when you're running simple battles on a grid, because everybody's just looking at the token and figuring out hit points of damage. Bragel, I hope that helps my friend Gabor, uh, Rex, right? Rex says, uh, we played Baldur's Gate Descent in the Avernus campaign, but because of some real world things, we had to cancel it. Two of my players played there and we all have unfinished business feeling about it. If you have to do that, uh, do you have any idea how the hell I can involve a new party in the middle of Avernus, in, a, in the middle of the Avernus campaign in hell? Uh, yes, I think I answered this on the on the Patreon too, but I will answer it here too, which is you can, uh, the the Hell Rider, not the Hellriders, uh, the, what are they called? The group of people driving around in the war machines, right? There's a bunch of gangs in war machines riding around in Avernus. They're kind of neutral-ish, right? They're pretty dark and neutral-ish, but those groups are excellent ways to bring new characters in there because player characters could be members of these gangs that have been there for a while and now they're breaking away. Take a look at the movie Mad Max Fury Road and see all the different characters that are in there and those are the kinds of characters that could go in there. And you could talk to the players who are coming in new and say, again do a new session zero right and say for this session zero uh, you know here are the new characters you you you, which one of these three crazy hellish war machine gangs did you come from how did you end up here right and then let them build their class but you can pretty much build any racer class and still have them be part of that group the question is how they survived in that group for as long as they had like if you have a holy paladin how has this holy paladin stayed with these groups? And maybe it's because like they say like yeah he's a holy paladin we hate him but boy he can cut down demons so we keep him we we just put a chain around his neck and drag him along in the car and then release him and he smites people right so I would say probably having them uh, having them get involved with those with the war machine group is a great way to bring new players bring new characters into an Avernus game because you're already in hell so are they. DM Timothy, how would you downplay a a vampire into a CR3? So I think uh, Timothy's question was actually significantly longer about this. And he was talking about how a particular product had monsters of different CR values that seemed to be out of whack. And I'm not going to sit and look at the design of a third-party product and figure out why they did it wrong. But I can talk about this. How would they downplay a vampire into a CR3 if it's all possible using your dials uh, that you talk about in your videos? So a vampire spawn is a CR4, I think. So you don't need to go far. You don't need to go far to get to a CR3 with a vampire spawn. Oh, sorry, CR5. Okay. Uh, I would probably, at CR3, I think vampire spawns are already a little bit weak for a CR5. What I would probably do is have the hit points, right? I would lower the hit points of a vampire spawn. Turn that dial down, the hit point dial down. Their armor class isn't so bad for a CR3. Uh, you, you know, the, the regen Uh, you might yeah, so if they take radiant damage, the regen stops you could have the regen be less, maybe maybe have the hit points, have the regen a- attack wise, they don't do that much, right the vampire makes two attacks, only one of which can be a bite and it's 8 damage for the, the main attack the bite is 13 Uh, yeah, 13 total damage right, it's not that much so a, I don't think a vampire spawn is that out of hand for a CR3 I think you could take the dial and dial this dial the hit points down And you would have a good CR three if you, if you need it, or just run it, just run it as is, you know, see, run it as is and see how it goes. Right. That can, that can work. So uh, DM Timothy, I know you had a longer part of that question on looking at bigger vampires. I would not take the full vampire stat block and try to knock it down to a CR three. That doesn't make any sense. Take the vampire spawn and lower it and then you should be fine. Zach W says, I really enjoy the one-on-one videos you did with Enrique. Yes, me too. Have you or do you intend to publish any other live play videos? This comes up from time to time. I get a, I get a lot of questions about this. And I get some people that are kind of mad that I don't do this. I'm not a streaming gaming guy, right? There are so many streaming shows out there. I want to talk about D&D. This is, I like what we're doing right now, right? I like talking about d and I like doing my prep about D&D because not a lot of I mean there's there's certainly a lot of people that are talking about D&D, right? Um, you know, but I like I like I really like doing it and it's it's not that hard to do. Setting up a game where you're running a game is a lot of work and not as many people as you think are going to be interested in it, right? especially the longer it is, people are busy. There's so many streaming games out there and they're so good. So many of them are so good. I don't think that that's a space where I can really provide something that's significantly different and significantly better than what other people are already doing. So I would rather do a talk show like this. Um, I also, my games are for myself, right? My games are for myself and for my friends. So taking my game that's for myself and my friends and moving it online, I don't wanna do it to them and I don't really wanna do it, right? Like. I want to just play D&D with my friends. So, so part of it is that too. I would love, Enrique and I have talked about doing the one-on-one thing again. So I'm getting back to that and maybe someday we'll do that. It's just scheduling is really hard and I'm, we're both terribly busy. They're, we both have a lot going on. So that comes up often though. Jim says, I'm toying with the idea of running a D&D campaign at work. Good, do it. However, the only real time available is a one hour lunch one lunch hour. Do you have any tips for hour long sessions? Are these even feasible? Yes, they are. I did a D&D, I was at the, the behind the DMs, not behind the DM screen, DM deep dive with Sean Merwin, my friend, Sean Merwin. Sean has written more one hour adventures than I think anybody, right? He wrote a whole bunch of one hour, really they're kind of two hour adventures. Like he, he, uh, I think they even started saying that they're they're two hour, you know, they're two hour um, uh, games. But he's written a ton of them. And in that video, he talks, he, he offers lots of tips for how to do it. So I I, I will link to that video uh, in the notes below because it's a good conversation where we dive deep into this very topic. But I'm gonna offer some specific tips here. First, stay low level, right? One to three levels, one to three, pretty good. One to four, the minute you get to fifth level, things are gonna take longer. So A, keep it low level. B, keep the number of players few. The fewer the players, the faster the game will go. So don't try to run a one-hour game with seven players, right? And six is really hard. Five, eh, four, eh, three, yeah, right? And one, sure, I get I get a lot of D&D done in an hour a one-on-one game, right? Uh, the one we talked about with Enrique, those were almost all one hour, right? And they worked really well, and we got a lot done. So fewer players, easier to do it. Fewer players, low level. That's, that's number one and two. When you're thinking about the kind of game, imagine that you're probably only gonna get three scenes right and only probably one combat so you really want to think about it like a half hour tv series like what can you get done there's a there's a setup there's the big meat and then there's sort of a conclusion right and you and you want to kind of build around that so start in media res like instead of saying like you're at the bar and a guy comes up and says we'd like to hire you because there's this weird abandoned church and we just found these catacomb underneath and my buddy Blake fell down the catacomb. Instead, you're like you are at the the old church, right? And looking down at the great big pit. You've been hired by this guy to find this fellow, Blake. And as you stare down the pit, and then all of a sudden skeletons are crawling out of the pit and attacking you. Right? Jump right into the action all the time. Always be in the action. This is something else for Blades in the Dark does really well, right? Always jump to the to the action and skip the skip the preamble. Skip the quest giving stuff. You know, you can still do the pillars. You still want exploration, you still want role playing, and you still want combat, right? You want to... Still have those player those those pillars. But role playing can happen with the guy who got lost rather than with the quest NPC. So many people start in a bar to earn a job, right? Skip all that. Like just assume they already took the job. And then and then what you might do is like between sessions you might say here are three potential quests that you could go on in our next game, which one of these are you interested in? Do it offline. And then they already picked one and then you can jump right into media res for the next one. So those would be my tips for running one hour games. It is hard, right? And it's it takes work but I think with those, I think those tips can help. Liam B says, how would you use the lazy DM notion template to track factions throughout a campaign through NPC villain cards? Or would you ever create a new category? Uh, interestingly enough, I did create a new character uh, category and I did it in my, um, so Numenera in my Numenera campaign that I'm running, uh, I, I create, look, NPCs and factions. And I created a thing where I had like the, uh, like, uh, let's see the convergence, right? The order of truth. Right? And I created an NPC faction card. So the nice thing about these tags in the database in Notion is you can just add tags whenever you want. And I said, sure, faction tag, right? Now it really only is useful when you're sorting on that. So I can, for example, go here and I can go into search and say faction. And it shows me just factions. If I wanted to, I could create another page that has a filtered view of the database just for factions. One careful thing you don't want to overorganize. You don't want to make things. You don't want to have too many hierarchies and too many levels, too many pages, and get lost. If like this is enough for me, if I could type faction in, I can find factions, right? I don't really need a separate faction page. I don't think. But maybe if I find myself doing it all the time, now it's probably worth adding a new page. So yeah, add a tag. You can you know when when we're looking at the database cards in the Notion database, uh, right? The you know, the tags are whatever you want. And you can add tags for anything. You could have, you could break up locations of different things. So like, I don't even know if I need villains, right? But I created a faction tag. So you can add tags for anything and then you can create views of the database and make new pages of those views for any of the tags that you feel are helpful. Just don't overdo it. Only do them when you need them. Only, only add a new tag when it's really discreet and you know that you're going to search on it. You know what you want to sort by. Then it's worth doing, but don't overorganize. Hope that helps. Sam M, I am starting a new campaign shortly uh, after finishing Rime Rime of the Frostmaiden at the end of the year, similar to yourself. Cool. And I've prepared a one-page campaign summary. Cool. The six truths are on there, but it's my first time running a campaign in a homebrew world. And I feel like the players will want slash need more info about the world to build their characters and have good links to the world uh, and knives for me as a DM to stab them with. It's hard to capture stuff like regions, factions, and relations between them on one page. And the homebrew is pretty basic stuff like dwarves good, but elves bad. And there's uh, there's a lot of undead here, but good faction don't do anything about it because they're at war over there. Maybe I just have more than six truths. Would you include this sort of thing in a separate optional to read handout? Maybe one to two pages in a gazetteer style or just leave it to the players and hope that they ask lots of questions. I would lean towards your ladder. I would really try to boil down. You don't have to give them the world, right? This is the idea of spiral campaign development. What do the, So what do the players need to have to build their characters for the game, right? First and foremost. And what kind of, really think about like the next adventure, right? What, what has to happen right now? and worry about what's gonna happen right now. Worry about the things that they need to know right now that really define the world. And it's probably not the great big wars that are going on, right? Like, you know, if, if somebody says, I am a soldier, then you might work with their character and start to add it. But I would probably add that stuff in as it's clear they need it. And I would be very careful about putting all that up front. You can make a campaign guide and maybe they read it, maybe some of them like it, maybe some of them don't, but you wouldn't, I would not expect that your players are gonna read it because no one's got time, right? So I would, I would really try to figure out how you can boil things down, right? Yeah, and then uh, Sussie Scott says and then reveal the rest of it as it's going on, right? Reveal the other parts of it as they come up have them learn it through secrets and clues for the adventure, right? So remember you have your six truths, but that's just for your session zero. Your session one, you've got 10 secrets and clues, 10 things they can learn. And the next session, 10 more things. and The next 10 more things. They're going to learn this stuff, right? They're going to pick it up. But it's really about what do they need right now, right? What do they need right today? They need to know where do I eat? Where do I sleep? Where do I buy swords? Where do I go to worship? You know, where do I go when I want to buy spells? And you know they, they wanna know about the stuff that their characters need. They don't really need the rest of the world, right? Something occurred to me when I was thinking about my new Monera campaign and I was kind of hemming and hawing and worrying about the campaign world. And what I realized is like the players, only about half of what the players care about is the campaign world. Most of it, m- half or more are their characters, right? And just what their characters can do, which means as long as they're thinking about like what subclass they're gonna choose, I don't need to fill in all the details of the world because they don't, they're not paying that much attention to it, right? So the, 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 how, the, the, the little rule of thumb that players are only understanding about half of what you're giving them, right? That's one kind of rule of thumb that I keep in mind. And two is the world only accounts for about half of the fun of the game. And the other half is the characters, right? It's oh, it might be less. It might be a third or less because it's also the players having a good time, right? So don't worry about it too much. And I would really try, you know, I challenge you. I challenge you to come up with one page, right? This is, this is some creative work here. And the creative work is taking your big ideas and knocking it down to a Cliff Notes size one page guide. Jonathan R. I would love a rundown of how you run a game online. Do you use Owlbear? Do you use two monitors or you expect your players to? Do you use D&D Beyond with it? How do you handle initiative? Use tokens in Owlbear or just write it down? I struggle with screen management, running online games and VTTs. So really curious how uh, you do it and what is shared with your players. I, and mine is not special. Uh, I, I do not have multi-monitors. I, I could kind of do them for my Wednesday game because I can use like an iPad and put d and Beyond up on an iPad on a, separate, on a separate device. And I've done that from time to time, but I tend not to use it, right? So I, I tend to run full screen and I, I actually run all my apps full screen and I swipe, uh, I'm on a Mac, don't yell at me. I don't, don't tell me about it. I don't want to hear about it, but I, I use a Mac and I swipe screens. So I actually have an infinite number of monitors and it's very quick for me to jump from one screen to the other. And one screen might be Albert rodeo going on there. Another screen might be discord with our chat in there. Another one might be DD beyond. I think typically I have, uh, I have my notion notebook up. I have DD beyond, up And I use that for encounter building. I use that for initiative. I use that for monster stat blocks. I use that for the adventure itself a lot of times. So I use d Beyond. I'm pretty reliant on DD Beyond. I know, don't yell at me. Uh, and then I have Discord, right? And I use, uh, and then Discord is our in-game chat. It's where I paste and share stuff with them. And obviously we use it for audio and video, right? Uh, then I might add a fourth window, which would be Albert Rodeo or whatever VTT. And honestly, I'm not particularly great at running it, right? I swipe a lot, I get lost a lot. I don't I'm not on the right page. My players are putting funny gifs in the chat and I'm not on there. So, you know, yeah. So it's tricky. Um, and I don't I don't I don't dictate to them how they use their system at all. I'm I'm assuming they all can set up their own systems, however they do. I've had players who just used a phone, right? Where they just play on a phone. I've had players who have big multi-monitor rigs, right? So generally they'll figure out what they need in order to play and mostly they just need and i haven't had anybody that's had trouble with like albert rodeo they usually have like discord i presume because this is what i have they have discord they have dd beyond for the character sheet and they have uh maybe they'll have a page that has notes or for like notion or something like that but yeah i don't have any special magic for that uh pete s how has your experience been using devastating critical hits So I I used this, uh, I wanted to try some house rules for my Eberron campaign. And one of the ones that I used was devastating critical hits. This idea that like when you crit, it's max plus an extra die so that you never never had a crit that was less damage than a normal hit, right? Because if the rolling double dice, the problem was that like we switched online and in online tools, the crit is automatic. Like it's just, you right click and say it's a critical and it does a critical, it does it automatically. So trying to then replace that with devastating critical hits, you know, It it, it ended up being harder. There were there were there were house rules that I was putting in place that ended up being harder because we already had the tool the the tools already wired it to do it the other way. So I just stopped doing that as a house rule, and I don't think it made a big difference when we ran in the game. The shield people like the shield one. The idea that like you can prevent a critical hit against you uh, by sundering a shield. Right. That was we 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 use that we use that from time to time. David W. For a campaign such as Wild Beyond the Witchlight that you're preparing now, how often do you adding encounters or side quests in the storyline, such as um, CZRPGs, encounters in the Feywild, their crooked routes while traveling during the campaign, or a whole level increase uh, increasing module such as a side quest? Every five sessions, a normal book, eight sessions, random, when do you use it? I don't, I don't really do a lot of that, right? Uh, a lot of times I'm adding in my own stuff. The one product that I used very extensively was uh, Waterdeep City Encounters. I've talked a lot about Waterdeep City Encounters. It was a, I think it's like one of the best-selling products in the DMs Guild. It's a fantastic book. And I use that a lot to fill in cities. So small products with small things that I can easily drop in one little layer, one little encounter, you know, those kinds of things I tend to use. Bigger encounter, uh, bigger encounter added things. I usually don't need because like I am i feel pretty good about what I've got already, right? And for Frostmaiden, I didn't feel like I needed to add more stuff in Frostmaiden. I did add some stuff, but it was my own, right? I didn't i didn't add third-party stuff in there. So I, I'm not bashing the kind of work. I love CZRPG's work. You know, Christian, Christian Zuck is a friend of mine. And um, I like the kind of stuff that they do. And a lot of time, I think it works better for inspiration. Like you sit and you read it and you like it. Now, Christian's work is very heavy with really cool maps and you could use those maps in your VTT or anything like that. So those are very valuable too. But I tend to... Uh, just stick with what's in the book. I don't know if I'm going to add other things into Wild Beyond the Witchlight or not. I don't, I'm not tempted to right now, right? I'm tempted to just go with what's in the book. Uh, Anton A, what is the best way to gradually reveal paper maps? I use Dyson logo maps and I'd like to uh, keep, keep, keep. Oh, I like to keep the secret doors secret and reveal the maps over time. Uh, this is something that's very interesting because it's so much easier to do it digitally now, right? And it's so much easier to use like the lasso, copy and paste, and just paste a version of the map that they see or use a VTT like Albert Rodeo that has Fog of War. So much easier to do that digitally. With physical, you can draw it old school, right? What, we, what we've been doing for 40 years, right? You put a piece of paper or you put out a, a battle map or something and you draw what they see and they, you know, it expands out. Uh, the other way is to, uh, if you can do a printout, you can do a printout and cover it with other pieces of paper to make a fog of war that can work somewhat well. Like when I do Dwarven Forge, I actually use cut up t-shirts as fog of war, right? I'll, Cause Dwarven Forge is 3d, right? It's got all sorts of 3d stuff. And I will just put, um, uh, cut up black t-shirts over the top to add the fog of war. And I just pull the t-shirt aside and it slowly reveals the map that works really well, but a construction paper, two or three sheets of construction paper, you can sort of manipulate them to show only the stuff that they can see and that works really well. Uh, and ideally, if you can print, if whatever map you're printing, if you can have a version of that that doesn't have the secret stuff on it, and then you can draw that part of it in, that can work really well too. But I would probably say the easiest way is the, especially with like a Dyson map, because they're not super detailed already, uh, is to draw it out like on a on a dry erase poster map. I really love the Paizo flip mat, and I would I would probably use that. I'll give you a trick. It's an old, an old trick. Uh, a piezo flip map. Actually, any gridded map or any published map underneath a big acrylic sheet. You can buy these acrylic sheets at like hardware stores or like Home Depot and stuff. Uh, get a three, two-foot by three-foot one. Uh, I've got a three-foot by four-foot one on my table upstairs. Those acrylic sheets, they cost 20 to 30, anywhere from like 20 to 50 bucks, right? But the last you've, I've had mine for 15 years, right? And those are great because they are perfectly smooth, perfectly flat. Miniatures feel great on them. And you can draw on it with a dry erase marker and then wipe it right off. So that's a great way to put something on there that you can draw on. And it's perfectly smooth. There's no seams that works really well. Otherwise, like a Paizo flip map, I think is really great. Paizo flip map and a dry erase marker. You know, you're doing it the way that we've been doing it for years and years. Pete S says, I'm going to start running a West Marches style Eberron campaign soon. I plan on having core players who are usually there, and I want somewhat through line stories from chapter to chapter, but I'm concerned that 10 secrets per session is a lot for the players to keep track of West Marches. Five or less feels right to me. Any advice on this in general and the lazy DM approach to West Marches? I mean, that's kind of interesting, right? Because you have a West Marches game, but you have going storylines, which I think. I mean, I'm not knocking you because like, you know, we all play how we play, but I think that's kind of different than how West Marches is intended to be played. The key to 10 secrets is like, you don't have to reveal all 10, right? And I never, I hardly ever reveal all 10. So 10 is just to get your mind working, right? And get you ideas and to make sure you have enough, but don't feel like you need to reveal 10, right? Again, one thing I hammer on is the secrets serve you, right? You don't owe secrets anything. Secrets are there to serve your needs, not the other way around right so if you write 10 you're not obligated to do anything with those you're not obligated to reveal them you're not obligated to make them true you can throw them away right but but the the secrets are there to help make sure you can fill out the world and fill out the story and make it interesting while the players are doing it so I I would still I argue that 10 secrets are still good because it gets your mind really racing about interesting things going on in your game and but if you know and and of course you're free to do whatever you want so like if 5 works better for you go with 5 but I think try 10 I challenge you. I challenge you to try 10. Any other advice in general about the lazy DM approach to Marches? I don't think so. I don't think I've I've written, I wrote an article um, on Sly Flourish. Uh Westmarch's Campaigns in Grendelroot, right? I was I was interested in the idea of taking Ruins of the Grendelroot, my book of Adventures, and turning it into a West March's style game. This article, I think. Uh, probably give some thoughts about how I would run a West Marches style game. It's mostly focused or it's a big look how big this article is, Jeebus. right? Um, it's mostly around how to do it in Grendel, but I but I think that this article probably covers some stuff that um about how to do kind of lazy DM style in 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 West Marches. But I don't think I've got any great things because so I don't I don't run West Marches games, so it's kind of, out of you know, not my place to. Not my place to say. Bram B says, back at it again with a request for high-level advice. At this point, I see more and more monsters who can use devastating, dis- uh, debilitating effects against my players. Really? I thought all the adults would. For instance, as soon as they face an adult amethyst dragon in its lair, it can cast Force Cage psionically as a lair action every turn. Whoops. It might feel like we're giving the players a taste of their own medicine and it taking out the barbarian for the whole fight without any counterplay. Just sounds frustrating to me. What would you do? Make the effect less invulnerable, not use such an ability. Mind you, the barbarian is a zealot who can't be killed with damage. Uh, I I think it's not out of place. I, I think is it, it's, it's priced. Does it still require concentration? Adult Amethyst Dragon. Let's take a look at that. That one in particular. It's I think it's generally rare to see this kind of thing. Right? I don't typically see there are some monsters. Um, is it a lair action? Dragon case's force cage spell using its spell save DC and no spell components. The spell ends early if the dragon uses lair action or dies again. So it can't, it can't hold it for very long. And I presume force cage is still concentration, isn't it? Is it not concentration? No, duration one hour. Whoa. Well, I would make sure that it only pulls that off and then and then switches to these other ones, right? And it, you know, it, it, it's only doing it for a round right, which kind of sucks, and it would suck if it's doing it to the same one. So yes, you're right, you wanna figure out a way, you wanna figure out a way to to make this not suck. a, a, a good common approach is, in your mind, think about deals that you can make with the player. You're able to grab this, because you, you're 20th level, you're really powerful, you're able to grab the bars of this force cage and break it open, but what does it do to you, right? Does it cause, like, does he have to, you know, I, I always like the giant pile of psychic damage, right? Maybe for uh, Zealot, I, force damage, right? Like, you take a D8 per level in force damage, right? <laughs> or D8, you know, 10 D8 force damage to break free. All right, maybe that'll scare a zealot. You know, if you can't kill a zealot, I I like the deal of replace a, a debilitating status effect with damage. Right, and uh, I have a thing in the DM's Companion where I talk about this that like, anytime they have a debilitating status effect like fear or stun or whatever, uh, they can break out of it by taking one one d8 for every other level, uh, basically one d uh, half their level in d8s in psychic damage. Right, that works pretty well. So keep that trick in your mind of, and offer a deal to them. Like, what can they do while they're there, right? On their turn, they don't want to just sit on their thumb, right? So what else can they do? You know, that's that's something I would consider. Bram B. Oops. No, that was Bram B. Chad M. Do you think the OGL, uh, the open gaming license, has helped the incredible growth of D&D compared to other systems that never opened up? I.e., would Numenera have a larger following if it had an OGL? I don't know. Uh, it's, and I, I can't really hypothesize. I, I, I imagine the OGL has certainly helped with 5e because of 5e's popularity. I don't know if you took a game that was less popular and, and opened it up and, and if you would see a big explosion. It seems like it's a good idea, right? It seems like taking your core mechanics and creating a an open gaming thing would be better. I kind of wish Cypher would do that. I think Cypher system would, would offer some really interesting things if there was a version. Numenera, for example, uses the Cypher system. It'd be very interesting if Cypher system was open uh, and open in OGL, but they're, they're not under an obligation to do so, right? And that's fine. Um, there's also a question of like, you can't, you can't trademark or copyright or patent game mechanics to a point, right? So you could steal a lot steal out you could take a lot of ideas from a game system and kind of make a new one you just can't call it that so you can't say it's the cipher system but you could do like the you know the level system of the cipher system where you roll a d20 and and three times the level is the difficulty score you could probably wire that into another system right and a lot of games have taken systems that are open but have changed them significantly blades in the dark takes a lot of ideas from uh, powered by the apocalypse takes a lot of ideas from fate and some other places makes a whole new system and then they put that out as a powered by the powered by the dark or something like that uh i looked at iron sworn iron sworn is an excellent solo rpg iron takes a lot of ideas from powered by the apocalypse a lot of ideas from fate changes it turns it into its own system so they benefit from it but they didn't really need the old ones right they didn't need an open license for the old ones because you could just kind of do it so i don't know the answer is i'm not sure i don't know if it would help or not hey it's my pal rex again here hey to my pal mike how would you lead a seven to eight part hey we're back to talking about um Grendelroot and avernus uh, how would you lead a level seven day party from the Grendelroot campaign to the middle of the Avernus module? I have a loose idea about a kind of Blackstar Archmage hunt. My player formed a strong bond for the Grendelroot characters and they want to ride with them and be able to play uh, play them. I've never done that before. Transfer party from one setting to a mega, mega module. Yeah, so there's certainly easy ways to have portals into hell. You could take the whole idea that the Deep Delver's Enclave gets pulled into hell, just like Elturel does, and then run Avernus kind of as written, only now... Deep Delver's Enclave is sitting on an enclave uh, area of hell. Another way would be to have a portal somewhere in the mountain, somewhere in Blacklaw Mountain, that opens up to uh, Avernus and that the characters either get pulled through or they need to step through in order to chase. I kind of like your idea of the archmage hunt, right? That maybe there's an archmage who has gone into hell to recover something that if he comes back with it, it's going to be devastating. So they have to go in there and stop him before he does it. I think that would work really well. I have my two-hour-old coffee. that was a mistake rich g uh how do you present and integrate monuments into your game do you tell your player a crumbling necrotic slaughter field or the frost of the frost giant is over there and leave it to them to and how they'll interact with it if the adjective typically denotes a detrimental state do they quickly deduce not to mess with these monuments you play it by ear right sometimes they might you might only so so when you're rolling up a random monument from like the lazy dms so both the lazy dms companion and the lazy dms workbook both have ways to roll to create interesting monuments right interesting focal points for a location and i like to roll them just to get my mind thinking about them and then i sort of build the story around it and i try to like how do you make it true in the world and then From that story, it's like, well, what parts of it are clearly evident, right? And sometimes it could be clearly evident that, yeah, there's waves of necrotic energy coming off of this weird obelisk, or maybe they don't discover it until they get nearby, or maybe they activate it, right? It really depends on the monument, and it depends on the story that you end up with. Monuments also work really well as a vehicle for secrets and clues. So you can have them discover the secrets, and those secrets might reveal more uh, characteristics of these monuments sometimes the monument is just an interesting way to make a battle in the battle cooler right that like there's a arcane rune and anybody who channels energy from it has to make a dc 15 uh intelligence arcana check if they succeed they get to add 2d6 force damage onto their attack if they fail they take 2d6 damage right so and then you would just i would just tell them i would you know i wouldn't hide that i would say like whoever is trained in arcana can tell that they can do this so it really depends on the monument and it depends on what you're doing with it right i think that that I think that that's, um, uh, uh I think that that's a, uh, uh, how I would, how I would approach and what I, what I recommend. Jason A says, I have been running a fifth edition campaign for my two very good friends, both of whom are much more experienced than I, uh, as they have been going through D&D since second edition. We have been playing the Forgotten Realms campaign setting for 14 levels and keeping up with their knowledge and lore has been exhausting. We're planning on going vertical and spell jamming our way to greener pastures after they finish up sabotaging every apotheosis or two. Uh, do you have any advice for high-level spelljammer campaigns, both in terms of Spelljammer combat mechanics and campaign adventure encounter style? Things like that Things uh, seem, seem like they'd operate much differently when they, characters can just pick and go wherever they'd like, and I'm having trouble wrapping my head around the Boundless nature of things to come. I have no idea. I've never run a Spelljammer campaign. I have the book. Uh, I think, no, I've got my Planescape book here. I've got a Spelljammer book somewhere in, in the office. Um, you can buy the hardcover version, uh, like a newly printed hardcover version of Spelljammer uh, from the DMs Guild, which is pretty cool. But I've never run it. So I really don't have an idea how to do it. Um, I think you can kind of just make worlds like dungeons, like world, you know, set your quest, but the quests are like worlds. I don't really know. The, one thing that was interesting about this question that I want to talk about is like, what happens when you have players who know way more about your campaign world than you do? And it's easy to say like, well, you just give them some rain, right? You give, you let them bring their knowledge in. And that works too, but it can be tricky. So you, you kind of have to make sure that they understand that your world is your world. And even those for Forgotten Realms, like, well, in my world the Netheries aren't like that, right? And and hopefully they're okay with that. And and a lot of players that are are kind of respect that won't bring it up. They'll know like, oh yeah, well Mike did it differently in his world. In my world, this is true, but or in the world I know of Forgotten Realms, this is true, but I guess here this is true. So you, you probably want to have that description. But it is it is a tricky situation when you have players who know significantly more about the world that you're running in. For some people, it's bad enough that they don't run in that world, right? That you know, they they say I'm that's why they run my own. They're, I'm an expert in the world that only I know about, right? So uh, some people do that for that, for that very reason. Um Yeah, so it's a it's a tricky situation to deal with. And there are ways to kind of tap into your friend's knowledge of the world and have them help build the world out if you run that kind of game. Otherwise, you know, conversation during session zero to be like, I get that you guys know a lot about the Forgotten Realms. There are going to be times in here where I'll call upon that information and maybe we'll change things or we'll, we'll, we'll retcon if I was wrong. Or there are times where what I'm saying is the way this world is. Steve L. Uh, I am currently running a darker, grittier campaign and the characters in this abandoned town that is being reclaimed. Uh, while the characters are there as muscled to, uh, to complete story missions, they have shown interest in actually helping out the town to rebuild. How would you go about this? And what sort of skill checks and activities and things uh, like that should I add? So there are numerous products that you can get. Strongholds and Followers by MCDM, but there are many others too about how to sort of get into... Uh, world building, in-world world building, city building, you know, building layers, building your own kind of environment, hiring hirelings. There's a fair bit in the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide for costs of stuff like that. I, again, would focus on the story, right? Just, like, if they decide that they want to do something, then you talk about them about how they do it. You can do interesting things, like, in order to help get the church back and operating again they have to go recover the thing that got lost and it's in a dungeon and now they have to go on a quest to get it so you can tie some of the world building aspects to adventures that they have to go on you could also do a lot of it in downtime sessions right and in that case you don't need a system just do it right just figure out how much you think something costs and you know remembering that two gold pieces a day is how much trained labor costs right and sort of building from that and uh figure out how much stuff costs and then just have them do it. But you know, for your skill checks, Xanathar's Guide has good stuff in it. And, uh, but you know, you, your own experience with like what skills you think are, are valuable uh, can certainly can certainly work. But I go back to like, I don't need a new mechanical system uh, to do that sort of stuff. I would I would tend to just f- focus on the story. Hey, we're getting towards the end, I can see the bottom. Uh, Gary B says, I've never run point crawls for my group and I'm very interested in doing it, but not sure how looking at the overland map, uh, point crawl map and the DMs companion. Yay. Uh, would you give the whole map to players or just describe certain sections and pathways? I hate to say it, but it depends. right? And you, the, the point crawl map that you give to the players is the map of what their characters would know. So if they know about all of the different paths that go between point a and point B and the different s- locations that exist between those two points, then that's what they would know. If there are secret paths, they wouldn't know them, so you wouldn't reveal them. Uh, I think it's perfectly fine to draw to, to draw a path out. I would not take, unless they know all of it, I probably wouldn't take like the map like the one that's in the companion and show it to the players and be like, here's the point crawl between it because there's secret stuff in there, right? There's drawings between two different gateways that they could find out. So I would take a sheet of paper and I would write names on there and I would draw the paths that they know. If they're going into a completely unexplored land, they would probably only know the point that they're in the points that they can get to next they probably the point they're trying to get to at the end but they're not exactly sure how they're getting there and and the paths that are going to connect those points right and give them two or three options and then each time they get to a node they would learn about the other paths and they would see, oh hey that loops back to that other place that we were going to or that loops over to the other place that we missed do we want to go over there this time Right. And then, they, you know, oh, we got, you know, our perceptive, uh, our perceptive wizard or or cleric saw that there's a secret path that goes through the mountains so we can actually bypass some of that swamp of no hope and we can go through the mountain range here. I'm sure it'll be totally safe. Right. So show them what the players show them what the characters see. Right. And see how that goes. And, and, and you can just kind of draw it on a piece of paper, right? You can make it pretty simple. Really, a point crawl is essentially dungeons for overland, right? Think about it like how you would do it for a dungeon. Like, what would you expose to them when you're, when you're, when you're showing them a dungeon map? And, and just do that, but it's for overland travel, right? And the rooms are the locations and the hallways are your, the, the paths. It could be a riverbed, dry riverbed. It could be you know, a switchback path through the mountains. It could be uh, a teleportation tunnel, you know, a teleportation portal. Luke L, my 11-year-old son wants to play a one-on-one game with me. Awesome, and he wants to DM. Excellent. Any advice for how I can help coach from the player's side of the table? So I gave you some advice. I actually got advice from my friend Sharon, who has run games for for children for a long time. So she had a lot of good information on this. And generally, it's like you really want to you you know help help them keep it simple, but don't don't be critical of it. Don't don't over, you know, just let let them run and let them try right and and when they come to you that's when you help out otherwise you just enjoy enjoy this story it's really fascinating and it's, and that's like a, you know I, i'm i'm not experienced with this right so it's it's really fascinating and really interesting and and it's a delicate time right because you know if, if it goes bad at 11 they might never want to do it again so you got to be careful and you know probably have to step back from dad mode, right? And just be a player again. And just, you know, hopefully they can keep it simple. And hopefully you can help them keep it simple. Um yeah. Fun times and awesome. Ryan F. I have started running runes of the root Yay for my group and I have hope of running into a tier four campaign. Woo to complete the overall story. Uh any suggestions on other material other than yours, all of which I already own, that I can use, thank you. Uh that I can use to help flesh it out once I get done in the adventures in the book. Yeah, so obviously uh, there's a the, the level 5 to 20 campaign arc in there. The main thing is like, what's the big story arc? I mean, essentially at that point, it becomes a custom homebrew adventure, right? Like there's an arc that's in that book. And I, I threw a lot of ideas in there about different kinds of adventures the characters could go on uh, to follow the arc, that, that, that 5 to 20 arc. But you're going to come up with a lot on your own. And I always say like, fall back to Dyson maps, uh, come up with interesting scenarios, look at interesting monsters that might come up. There's a lot you can get with a the mon- you know, copy of the monster manual and a big pile of Dyson maps can get you through a lot of D and D right. So, uh, I would probably try that. Um, Any other, you can you can harvest other adventures. We we, you know Rex up above was talking about how he's going to drop it into Avernus. So you could do that. You could take like out of the abyss, which has some fair a fair amount of high level stuff. You could take Empire of the Ghouls. You could take a lot of other adventures that go to further and higher levels, and take those pieces. You could take uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, right, and drop those pieces into your game. I think there's a lot you can harvest uh, from a lot of different books. But nothing. I don't have anything that I can say like oh this is a perfect. This is the perfect uh, Grendel Root 5 to 20 campaign, but good luck and thank you for playing Ruins the Grendel Root. Thank you for picking up my stuff. Devin, uh, how do, you, uh, do you have any specific experience converting settings to a different system? Do you have any tips for running Fate and getting your players enthusiastic? That's two questions, Devin. Um, I have not really taken a, a setting and moved it to a different system. I kind of like to use whatever system the setting was built around. So the 13th age has its own world. And I think that world fits well with 13th Age's mechanics. So I don't really want to change that world. Uh, Numenera, you could play Numenera with Fate. I often thought that Numenera would actually be a good Fate campaign, or you could use the Fate rules. But on the other hand, I'd rather use the Cypher system, right? I've got the Cypher system, and the Cypher system is kind of built originally for Numenera, so I would want to use that. Blades in the Dark, a lot of people talked about the fact that you could take Duskwall from Blades in the Dark and make it a D&D world. That's fine. But why not play it in Blades in the Dark too? So I tend to, I tend to play it with whatever system came with. So I don't have any experience uh, converting a system from one setting, from converting a setting from one system to the other. I don't think it's that hard because a lot of times the setting doesn't have any mechanics in it at all, right? So like, you know, how for, I mean, look at Forgotten Realms, right? Look, Forgotten Realms has gone through six versions of D&D, seven versions of D&D, something like that, right? And many of those versions have been very different from one another. So you can, I don't think you need to do a lot of work to take a setting and convert it to... um. I don't think you need to do a lot to take a setting and convert it to a system. Uh, Mostly it's like, does that setting general thing work? So hope that helps. Do you have any tips for running Fate? Uh, I really like running it as a one-shot and I like building characters as part of it, right? One, I I think Fate's strongest point is that you can build a character in like three sentences and and be ready to go. I really love that. I think Fate is the best uh, one-shot system I've ever used. And I and I love it for that. It is very flexible. It is very fast. And character generation is really, really quick. And I love it for that. I don't like the funny dice. And I know that's like a terrible thing to say, but I really wish it used like a pair of D6s. And you can use it with a pair of D6s, kind of. But it's like one side has to be the other and you got to subtract one from the other. It's a big pain in the ass. But I like f- Fate. And, and they have a new one, Fate Condensed. I think I have it. Yeah, is it right here? You know? Yeah. So I got my copy of Fate Condensed, right? And really like thin book. It's like, I think it was like $8, eight bucks for the physical book, right? And like the worlds you can build with this, the stories you can build are amazing. Fate is, fate is awesome. So yeah, I really love fate. Uh, to get players enthusiastic, draw them into the world, right? Make your world really fun and interesting. Because the mechanics are pretty light in fate, right? Seb S, my players spend a lot of time during combat discussing strategy and planning for their turns. This means typical combat often takes over an hour. Uh, while they generally enjoy these tactical elements of the game, they have now suggested several times that we speed up combat. Do you have any suggestions? Didn't we have a question earlier that was like, hey, my battles are boring and I need to make them more interesting, right? So this is what I'm talking about with like, hey, the, the weird interest of going back and forth on on, on battles. And um." theater of the mind you know I, I i don't want to keep banging the same drums all the time but like running smaller battles if you want to keep things fast run battles with fewer monsters than players fewer monsters than characters use only one type of monster don't have a lot of environmental effects that 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 play big that that really matter and don't use a grid Right. Describe it. Describe it or use very simple diagrams to show like who's in the front and who's in the back. Think about the way battles are in Final Fantasy. Right. You've got lines, you got your front line, your back lines, you got your, you know, one group and they clash, right? Same with like Darkest Dungeon. Think about think about like the the style of Darkest Dungeon, which is actually pretty tactical, but that style of play, the one-dimensional combat, right? Where it's basically one line versus another line. Um and run small fights. If your group prefers the grid and like, I don't want to do theater of mine, I hate theater of mine. Just like, yeah, but you're fighting two orcs, right? You're, you're, you're five seventh level characters fighting two orcs. You don't need to draw a battle map for that. Like start small, start simple, and then kind of build up, right? And 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 talk to them about what they can do and what they can't do. And talk to them about how you adjudicate it. Give them the rule. Like I, I, I recommend you hand them a copy of the, you know, my Sly Flourish's Theater of the Mind guidelines so that they have an idea of like how this works, right? And that can speed things up quite a bit. So you want battles to be faster, Remove the options for tactics and get to that Final Fantasy-style battle. I think can really matter. I got lots of articles about it. Chris W, I've started a uh, while beyond the Witchlight game next week, and I love your idea for the Dread Incursions, but I'm concerned about the rewards. Just look at your session zero; you're giving a level one character realistically level two by the time they use it a fourth level spell. I know it's only one cast, but I feel like it will trivialize any encounter in chapter two, possibly three as well. They wouldn't be able to cast this as a spellcaster until the final chapter. Do you just roll with it? And if they walk uh, walk over an encounter, uh, so be it. Yes. I, I really like giving high power things to low level characters because they, they're, they're cool and they matter. And a lot of times they hoard them and they don't use them, right? So they might trivialize it, but they might be like, yeah, maybe I want to save this, right? Maybe I don't want to use this. And one thing is like, you can get through any encounter in Wild and Beyond the Witchlight by talking to them. So I'm not worried about them making a battle too easy because they can get out of the battles just by how they navigate the situation already. Uh, the spell I did give them was not crazy powerful. They can summon a knight, a, a, a knight construct, right? A construct of a knight that will, that will walk around with them for an hour. So, I mean, that knight is really powerful, right? It's like a 40, 50 hit point thing, right? When they're like 12, so it'll matter, but it's not going to last forever. And if it trivializes one battle, it does. And that's kind of the fun of the story, right? The thing is they can't do it all the time, right? If you give an overpowered magic item that they use all the time, now you've trivialized everything. One battle, not so bad. And it can be really interesting. Uh, in my final rhyme of the Frostmaiden game, one of the players pulled out an artifact they've been hanging on to forever that created a reverse gravity well. And it changed the whole battle. The final battle of the game changed the whole battle and powerful monsters are flying up through the ceiling. It was crazy fun. And it really changed everything. Talk about like changing up the tactics of your battle. It changed everything and it was really cool. So I'm really glad I did it. It's that fun of like, I don't know what's going to happen, right? And you give them a nuclear bomb and you're going to see what happens. Floppers, great name says, how do I get my players to role play with each other? My players are all very good friends. We've been playing for years and we have a great time. I've noticed though that they almost exclusively engage with me. I've tried friendly reminders like one of your party members might have more information about that uh, religion, etc. This only seems to work once and the behavior returns to each player only engaging with me and DMing. How can I get them to talk to each other? A lot of, lot of points to this. One, you can't, right? And they're going to play how they want to play. And they might not be the way you want them to play, but that's the way they want to play. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. If you think like they're missing out on some fun, Then I think doing what you're doing of like coming up with situations where they can role play with one another, but don't, you know, a lot of this big, I I should, I should probably write a book about all those simple lazy DM philosophies that like, just relax a little bit, right? Like it's okay. Let them, let them play how they play. Sit back, watch what happens, you know, and if they want to interact, they do. If you're playing online, it's also tricky because people feel are always worried about talking over one another. So you know, if you're playing in person, that's kind of different, where that sort of thing. But it depends a lot on the situation, the physical situation that you're in when you're running your game. But I would say generally, like, you know, keep doing the reminders, right? And if they work, they work. If they don't, they don't. And if they don't want to role play with each other, then they don't. That's okay. You can also talk to them and be like, you know, if you guys want to do more role playing among each other, feel free. But some people just aren't. They think it's weird. They don't want to. And that's fine, right? They don't have to. Atsu333 says, I've been brainstorming a campaign idea to introduce my players to Numenera as outsiders who aren't from the ninth world. With the campaign starting as they arrive there, what kind of info should I be giving in a session zero in a case like this where their characters should share their unfamiliarity with the world? Or I guess any other campaign based around the party being in a strange new place. They still know stuff, right? They're still a baseline campaign, even if they like pop out of nowhere and they end up in the, this thing, they the characters still have context. And what context do you wanna give them? Maybe you could change your session zero around so like you're filling in the six truths. The six truths are not truths anymore, now they're secrets. That can work. Uh, but they still know stuff, where did they come from? What do you want them to know? They, they wanna build characters, right? So unless you're doing like a Planescape Torment style where they all come in as like gray globs and then eventually you figure out what class they are. I mean, you could do that. Um, but I think, you know, you still want to sit down and be like, yeah, I got to give information to my players. You want to give the players information enough that they know if they want to even play this. So what information can they learn, right? What, what can they learn? What are they going to learn pretty quickly? And maybe maybe go a step ahead and just give them enough information. It's like, you're going to figure this stuff out right? As you, you're going to figure this out by the time you get there. So I would, I would probably go with something like that. I would, I would say like, you you could do your session zero and kind of have everybody sort of get introduced while they show up in this place. That could be kind of fun. But a lot of the rest of it, you know, the, 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 the elevator pitch of the campaign, even if the characters don't know it, the players might want to know it. Like, what are we doing? Like, what game are we playing? The truths, maybe you only give them one or two, right? And maybe you start with like the perspective of what their character learns. You have landed, You know, you're sitting atop this strange place. You see a great big sphere. You know, there's obviously a mixture of like high tech and low stuff going on. Maybe you give them just enough to know that even though their character doesn't know why they're there, the players do. And they're going to learn it really quickly. The characters are going to learn it really quickly. That's probably what I would do. That is the last of the January 2022 Patreon questions. Uh, I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me tonight to go over these questions. I, I, it's always a great time to hang out with all of you. If you're watching the video on YouTube, thank you so much for watching the video. Thank you to the patrons of Sly Flourish specifically for supporting this show and all the other stuff that I do. I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing your questions and going through that. It's an excellent time. Uh, if you've enjoyed this show and you want to help out, you can do so by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, picking up any of my books, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, or uh, becoming a patron yourself. So, thank you all very much for hanging out with me tonight. Take care. See you this coming Sunday and get out there and play some DD.